0: This is WexCast from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. For this episode, we connected with three filmmakers who were each tasked by the late filmmaker Barbara Hammer with completing one of the projects she was unable to finish before her death in 2019. Supported in their efforts by Hammer's multi-year Wexner Center Artist Residency Award, Lynn Sachs, Deborah Stratman, and Mark Street each discussed their relationship with Hammer and how their respective final films came together. And though each had a distinctive approach to the work, they all eventually fell into a kind of conversation with Hammer through her archived footage. First, you'll hear from Mark Street, who made the film So Many Ideas, Impossible to Do All, using interviews Hammer shot with Jane Brackage, an artist and writer who was married for years to filmmaker Stan Brackage. After that, Deborah Stratman discusses Vever for Barbara, which she made from footage of Hammer's 1975 trip to Guatemala, and how the presence of experimental film legend Maya Darren ended up working its way into the film. Finally, Lynn Sachs talks about a month of single frames, which combines images from Hammer's 1998 residency in a shack on the sand dunes of Provincetown, Massachusetts, with audio that Sachs captured as she and Hammer first discussed the project. The completed films screened in November 2019 at the Wexner Center and have gone on to play film fests and win awards. Most recently, Sachs's film won the grand prize at Germany's International Short Film Festival Oberhausen. You can check out the page for this podcast at wexarts.org blog for links with more info on the filmmakers and these works.
1: one of my teachers at the San Francisco Art Institute in the early 90s. And I knew her, I always admired her. She was just so generous in to the community in in general. So she got in touch with me and said that she wanted me to work with some material. She had made a film in 1974 called Jane Brackage about um, Jane Brackage, a poet, Stan Brackage's wife, but an artist in her own right, of course. And she felt like there was some ancillary material that bore another investigation. So she gave me some postcards and some letters that she had written to Jane and that Jane had replied to her 1973 to 1985. Barbara had retrieved them from the Brackage Archive at the University of Colorado. So I went over to her house in the West Village, uh, July of 2018. And she had brought a hard drive and she gave me a copy of her film, Jane Brackage, and the outtakes from it. Some video interviews with Jane Brackage's uh, parents. And had me take pictures with my phone of this correspondence that she had laid out on a table. So that's how it started for me. It was a great honor and also pressure because I admire Barbara so much. But as I was taking photographs of this material, she said, you know, you should do whatever you want with this material. And I'll never forget, she said, don't look at my 1974 film, Jane Brackage Uh, because I don't want you to be influenced by that. And I imagine that the film you make and that film might play together. So there shouldn't be too much duplication. So pressure (laughs) to not duplicate something you haven't even seen yet. I think I ended up looking at it anyway. But I thought about reaching out To Jane Wodening, she went back to her original name when uh, Stan Brakhage and she divorced. She's a poet, I think lives a very interesting life. So my thought was to reach out to her and do some interviews. My other thought was to get some actors to portray the young Barbara Hammer and the older Barbara Hammer between 73 and 85. And another thought was, an obvious thought was to go interview Barbara while she was alive and get her to read the letters. I decided to use absence as a positive thing and to sort of imagine and reinvent rather than getting the actual historical record. You know, rather than going for verisimilitude, I decided to deal with how the letters spoke to me and how I imagined. Barbara in those times. Um, I read through the letters over and over again and I edited them and excerpted and, you know, figured out a sort of thread of things that I thought were interesting. And I decided to have the footage that she'd shot of Jane Brackets at that time stand in for a response, it being a sort of call and response. Barbara's writing Jane's image. Barbara's writing Jane's image. And once I figured that out, that it was going to be epistolary, that it was going to be Dear Jane, and then the footage, another letter, another date, I sort of felt like Barbara had done her portrait of Jane Brackage, and I didn't want to duplicate that effort, I wanted to do a portrait of Barbara, in fact, and I felt like what came through in her letters and postcards was her indomitable spirit and curiosity and risk, you know, the the risks she took as an artist. So, you know, I I chose the, the parts that I thought expressed that most, and then I started to sort of just conjure Barbara to the extent I could. I hired some assistants in San Francisco. The letters start in San Francisco, Berkeley, Oakland and she's setting up this interview with Jane Brackage. then she goes and does the interview and then she writes her after the fact until about 1985 and then where she when she moves to New York and the last letter is from New York. So I thought that's a trajectory, a move of Barbara's, you know, across the country. And, you know, she develops her voice more as an artist. 1973 is the first postcard. She's in graduate school. She's discovering filmmaking. And she evolves over those 12 years into, you know, a a seasoned filmmaker, sort of before our eyes in the letters. So, yeah, I went out to San Francisco. I hired three young women. I thought about Barbara as newly out in 1973. She had just literally walked out the door on her marriage with just the clothes on her back. I got this from Flory Burke, her uh, surviving partner. I did an interview with her maybe to use it, but more like – can you tell me what Barbara said about her days in San Francisco? Florey and uh, Barbara weren't together at that point, but they knew of each other. And I said, doesn't matter if you know what happened, just tell me what Barbara told you about it. And again, using this distance or this sort of faulty memory, you know, possibly faulty memory or not perfect memory is a positive. So I got a lot of background from Florian in that way. And I in San Francisco, I just drove around with these three young women and said, look, you know, let's go to the addresses where Barbara lived and just sort of breathe the air that she breathed and imagine her as a newly out lesbian in San Francisco and just sort of see what she saw and smell what she smelled and listen to what she listened to. I knew she'd gone to San Francisco State. I said, let's go out to San Francisco State. She had, you know, really negative things to say about that patriarchal institution and the way she was treated by her male professors. So I said, let's go out there. And then also, let's think about her loving nature. It's one of the connections she had with Jane Brackage, who lived in a very rural spot in Colorado and She has a sort of St. Francis of Assisi-like being where she's feeding birds and the birds are landing on her head and things like that. My film actually opens with footage of Jane Brackage holding a raccoon that they had as a pet, domestic pet, in their house in the cabin in Colorado. So um, I think Barbara connected with that. Sort of nature like sensibility. I said, let's think flowers, let's think uh, bucolic, you know, and San Francisco, of course, is a place where, you know, flowers are growing in between the cracks of the sidewalk and it's very easy to get out of town into nature and things like that. So we spent two, three days, four of us driving around. I shot 16 millimeter film. I went to all the addresses that she had listed and just tried to shoot things I thought she would shoot. Simple as that. I also thought about the journey. The film's divided into two parts sort of before the interview with Jane Brackage and after. And I said to these young women, if we were going to drive to Colorado, how would we get there from San Francisco? And they said, well, you know, we'd go east. You know, 80, I believe it is. And so I said, let's just do that for half an hour. And I filmed out the window. So I hit all the things I wanted to hit out in San Francisco. And then, uh, at one point, she mentions elephant seals at Año Nuevo Beach near San Francisco. So I found some footage just sort of out there in the ether of these elephant seals doing battle on the beaches out there. As I said, the film ends with her in New York. And I had some footage that I had shot on 16-millimeter film on Canal Street in New York. So I I integrated that into the film. And... You know that's sort of barbarous side of things. You know the letters, the postcards, the footage I shot in San Francisco and New York, and then when I looked at the Jane Brackage material, I thought I thought what was interesting about this friendship in this epistolary relationship was how over time, you know, there was intimacy. And then a sort of pullback, and then more intimacy, and then a pullback. I was thinking about the salutations, you know. The first one is signed sincerely, and then we get to warmly, and then there's love. And then 10 years later, I think we're back to warmly. You know, there's a kind of, there's a way that friendships, long-distance friendships, blossom. I don't want to say shrink, but they change their nature over time. And I wanted to sort of trace that arc, as it were. What was I looking for in the footage of Jane? Barbara's very direct, a very direct person, startlingly so, I think, in a way, completely admire. And, you know, she asks Jane at one point, is there a reason why you don't look people in the eye when you talk to them? She says, do you get some sort of security in rejecting those who are looking at you? And it's a very, um, interesting, it's short of confrontational, but it's direct. It's a directness. And another thing I found in the letters was Barbara's and Flory bore this out of my conversation. I said, what is this gestalt therapy and psychosynthesis and these different things? And Flory said, Barbara was always open to these paradigms that she thought were really interesting. And she was always exploring and, and, um, uh, trying trying new things. So so I thought that all fit as well, you know. I really felt like I was in the presence of her ambition and curiosity and risk in making this film. And I chose sections that I thought expressed that and were unique and idiosyncratic to Barbara. Interestingly enough, I didn't include the material about San Francisco state because I thought Complaints about academia, as well-founded as they are, are sort of too usual for Barbara, you know? And what I thought was interesting was some other other sorts of things. I mean, there's one line I love in the film, and maybe it's controversial, I don't know. But she said, you know, Dear Jane, I've entered gestalt therapy, and by so doing, I have reentered a world of fantasy I'd renounced for the common prose of the women's movement. And I just thought that was so honest and great. And this is no knock on the women's movement at all. But it's just about different registers of language and how open Barbara was to all of them. And I thought that was interesting. Interesting because it's unexpected. Interesting because it's idiosyncratic and sort of multidimensional in the way that Barbara was.
2: be honest, I can't remember if the first call came from Jennifer or from Barbara. I think it was from Jennifer. I think Jennifer um, kind of did a tentative ask, like, would you be open to that? And and I said, yeah. Um, but then didn't really know where it stood until a phone call from Barbara at the house, which was exciting <laughs> because we were not friends. I didn't know her. There was no reason she would have called me. So it was, it was very exciting to see. You know my answering machine. I don't have a cell phone, so when someone calls the house, it'll say like "Hammer B" or whoever it is that's calling. And I remember just like sitting bolt upright, (laughs) being thrilled that Barbara Hammer was calling me. And so she asked that first conversation, "Would you be willing to be involved in a collaborative way with some material she had shot in Guatemala?" And she was just sort of asking, "Do you have the time?" I know, you know, she said, "I know you're busy and." I knew right away, like, well, if Barbara's asking, there's no way I'm saying no. I don't care what the material is. So I said yes, and and that's how it started. I asked her during that first conversation, I think I must have, if I could record our phone conversations, because I knew she was really ill at that point because the whole context of the project had been explained to me by her, And maybe also by Jennifer, I can't remember, just that she had received the grant and because she couldn't finish the work herself, she was sort of passing the baton on, which I just love as a um, conceptual act to kind of share out the work and open up each of these projects to very different, I'm assuming, collaborations, depending on what the relationship was between the filmmakers and what the material was, et cetera, et cetera. So our phone conversations that we had, which were only two, I recorded both of them. And both of them were before I had seen any material. So I knew nothing. I only knew that she had taken her motorcycle in the seventies to Guatemala. I basically knew what she told me. So I was imagining the material, but I guess the thing that made me most interested in working on the project was that she had abandoned it and why. And so that ended up feeding a lot of the questions I had um, because her answer in the beginning was that she felt like um, it wasn't political enough, which was really exciting to me um, because I often feel that about my own work or I try to find ways that work can be political. I will say that someone else heard, because I ended up using that clip in the film itself, her saying that, and it was translated by someone as um, poetical, that the work wasn't poetical enough, which when I listen again, I'm like, maybe she's saying poetical, but she never said, I never heard it as poetical. I always heard it as political. And I always worked with that in my mind as that was what she said. So then it was A total delight to see the transfers. I always imagined we would have another phone conversation or I would be in New York and see her in person and be able to record more. And then she just got too sick. And then I thought, okay, that's fine. The same way I'm going to limit myself to only material she shot in terms of live action footage. Um, I'm just going to limit myself to these two conversations, and we'll see what those bear in terms of a film. So luckily, at some point, and I'm not sure what triggered what, um, I mean, honestly, I think I just by happenstance was also reading Divine Horseman, which is Maya Darin's book, about her time in Haiti, which she had gotten a Guggenheim for and spent a number of years there preparing for what she thought was going to be a film. And then she describes in her prologue to that book, uh, which is a really beautiful work of sort of anthropology, basically, and um, creative writing, that she decided to abandon her project. Um, Because as she says in the subtitles you see in the film, she felt kind of mastered by her material. And she didn't, I mean, she writes a lot about it, but basically she felt like the film wasn't the right form, for what she had to do. And Barbara, I mean, her reasons were slightly different, but to me there were so many echoes between when we feel mastered by the material and we can't master it or or what's the right balance <laughs> between that. And I wasn't making, trying to, the point of making my film wasn't to sort of say, see, the material can be mastered at all. It was to just open up a, to my ancestors, B, to a triad or triangular conversation, which I feel like is really strong, much stronger than a binary conversation. Um, they always say, like, you know, a triangle's the strongest form. <laughs> and it took some of the pressure off, frankly, of, of just feeling like, oh, this was a volley with Barbara. Like, it felt, she's such a canonical figure and has meant so much to so many people. And it just felt like, oh, I'd never be... I don't know. It felt intimidating. So to bring Maya Dara in as a third voice suddenly like totally released all the pressure because then I felt like, oh, Maya was somebody who influenced Barbara and she also influenced me. So I just felt like this makes it more part of a chain of response and not just about what do I have to say to Barbara, but also what does Barbara have to say to Maya and what does Maya have to say to both of us and what do I have to say to them? So that's a story of how it all started and finished. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I never would have imagined during the early conversations with Barbara using the Viver drawings, which are the white iconographic drawings that come up in the film. And those are Haitian drawings. But because of what they stood for, which is like you draw them in chalk or sand, they're supposed to be erasable and they serve as a door during Haitian Vodun ceremonies for the Loa or the God to pass through. And so, I don't know, I guess I was so interested when I saw that and all the ways that like, well, how does the film serve as a door between, you know, who's letting in who and um, is the film able to do all that? Or is Barbara and Maya, am I their horse? I guess, as uh, Maya would say in sort of the the Haitian religion would say, like the horse is who the God rides. And since I felt like I was channeling both of them, it wasn't so different than a um, possession of sorts. And I certainly worked with found footage many times in my past, but never with the footage exclusively of another artist with their rhythms um, so intact, you know, and I wanted to honor the rhythm that I found in Barbara's shooting. Well, I guess all those things were surprising. And it was surprising to me that it went as fast as it did. I just, like, I think I was spurred on knowing that Barbara's time was short on this plane. And so I just worked really, really fast, which was refreshing. Felt like a sketch almost. I guess I was surprised and also, like, of course, that the film has spoken as much as it has. I mean, it's really, I think in part it plays around a lot because there's been so many memorials to Barbara and and so it makes sense that it's included in those and there's a lot of memorial screenings. But I also think there's been a lot of programming even if people didn't really know Barbara's work or Maya's work. So I think it both has been able to function as part of this project of work that was generated and Barbara's whole life work, but also as a piece that speaks to ancestry, I guess, outside of Maya and Barbara.
3: So Barbara Hammer and I have had a long friendship. Uh, It started with her being a... In some ways, a mentor of mine on a very specific aspect of filmmaking. We met in San Francisco in the late 80s, and she and I were both very involved in the alternative film community, and it all centered around a place called the Film Arts Foundation. And in those days, in order to edit a film, you had to have very specific 16 millimeter equipment. It wasn't that you could do it at home on your computer at all. I mean, I didn't even own a computer at the time and probably she didn't either. Nobody did. So we would go to this hub and she was running a workshop on optical printing, which is a way of working with older images and manipulating them and diving into them and kind of reflecting on the representation of things. For both of us, it was often how women were represented in popular culture and we wanted to kind of as they would say, deconstruct that. And so you would go frame by frame and respond to it as an artist. So she taught me how to do that. And that was a skill I always valued. And I always knew that it had come from her garden of an enormous amount of filmmaking skills. And so we kept up over the years and would go to each other's screenings and sometimes go out for dinner and just sort of like we're in the same circle and the same celebration of all things cinema and all things non-commercial in that way. We were both teaching and um, making experimental films and documentary films and experimental documentary films, which is a very small niche, and both of us were very, very, very involved in that and, and sort of discovered that in San Francisco. And so jump ahead 30 years, and she... Uh, found out that she had ovarian cancer uh, probably about 10 years ago. And I tried to be a supportive friend in whatever way I could, as did my husband, who's Mark Street, who's also a filmmaker. And we would visit with her and bring her meals when she was in chemotherapy. And she went through three rounds of that. And so about a year ago, exactly, in the spring of 2018, she had just finished a film here at the Wexner Center called Evidentiary Bodies and that film had premiered at the Berlin Film Festival and she had gone despite the fact that it was going to be really trying for her physically she wanted to be there she loved being at her own screenings doesn't everybody so she went but she came back very physically compromised in a sense she well it probably was So happy and yelling and talking to all these people, even in her fragile situation, that she actually damaged one of her vocal cords. So the heat of that uh, difficult time in her life, and also celebratory at the same time. She invited me to come over to her house, and she said, well, I have something I want to talk to you about. So I get to her apartment in the West Village of New York City. And she says, well, I've decided that I won't be able to finish four projects, some of which I started years ago one she had started in the 70s, and this one she had started in the late 90s, not specifically 1998. And she said, would you like to finish one of these films? And she described them to me. And I just immediately connected to the way she described the solitude of this place, the Dune Shack in Cape Cod, and also the way she dismissed the work she'd done. She said, I couldn't finish the film because I felt like it was too much about me. And I was Excited to find out about the me she was talking about and also I was thinking about Virginia Woolf and that idea of a room of one's own and she had a shack of one's own and she was there for a month and she felt like she was both in awe of nature and also willing to transform it in a way that was not um, damaging but was an engagement as an artist that was respectful and exhilarated and so... I said, yeah, show me the footage. So I came back another day and she had transferred the 16 millimeter footage to digital and she sat with me and talked to me about it and she said, do whatever you want with this. It's my footage, I'm giving it to you, it's your film, it's our film, it's all of those things. Uh, that's not word for word, but that was the sense that I had. So I eventually cut a version of the film that was around 12 minutes. I did part of it while I was at the Yaddo artist residency in in Saratoga Springs, New York. I would do it in the evening when I wasn't working on the main project I was supposed to be doing there. And then I was able to show Barbara a cut of the film and she made some suggestions. And then she said go forth. She was excited about it. And then she She said to me, see you on the other side, and I didn't see her again after that because she died. But I felt like it was a gift and a responsibility and an invitation and a celebration of our friendship and of the kind of generational handing down between two women filmmakers. So one of the challenges of the film was to figure out a way to be playful, to be engaging with the material, not just organizing it, but to dig a little deeper, to excavate my role in the making of a piece that was responding to an experience that Barbara had had, but I hadn't had. I could understand it vicariously, but I hadn't touched the sand. I hadn't heard the sound of the wind in the grass. I hadn't lived in a shack without water and uh, electricity for a month. So I wanted to connect with it beyond editing it. And so I felt like I had to find a formal method, a cinematic method, a text-based method maybe to Converse with her, so I decided to keep the shaping of the film within the film. The way that we, in a very informal way, spurred each other on. Uh, You know, I would ask her a question, and she would go through her journal. So usually, you would cut out the sound of the journal, or you would usually you would cut out the sound of my fumbling around trying to think how to get things started or, or the part where she says her name and the date. But I thought that that framing of it gave a sense of our being in the same space and our trying to, to work on this together. Um, also, I felt like I needed to talk back to her work on the surface, on the screen, again, to get into the texture of it. So then uh, <laughs> as I was flying to Columbus, the beginning of this week, my flight left at 6 a.m., 6.15, precisely, from LaGuardia Airport, and I immediately fell back asleep, and then when I kind of woke up from a dream on the airplane a little bit before we landed, I just started writing, and there really, it was this liminal zone between my dream state and the landing, uh, and it was still the shade was down, so it was sort of dark, and I just started writing about to her, to her as a you, and to the audience, and I started to think about what it is to be in the same space with her within the film. It was as if we were in the same physical space, but we were also in the same space, like a conceptual space of engagement with material and with experience and then there was this other space which was the space that would bring in you or any audience with us and that's what's so extraordinary about cinema is we have the sensation of being together and that was a way for me to enter making the film
0: that was mark street Deborah Stratman and Lynn Sachs discussing their work completing unfinished projects by the late artist and pioneering lesbian filmmaker Barbara Hammer. I'm Melissa Starker for the Wexner Center for the Arts. For more info on projects supported by our film video studio and all things Wex, go to wexarts.org. Thanks for listening.